Hello and welcome to Mind Rolling Podcast with David Silver and me, myself, and I, Raghu <laughs> Marcus. Hi, Raghu. David is back from the realm of uh, the, the deep eastern sickness that's going on, right? It's, yeah, it's, it was really a little bit severe, though in the big picture, not really. But it, you know, right. it kind of put me down on the couch, and I watched and binged, watched a lot of you know fairly useless Showtime video. But <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be sick to do that, that's for sure. No, but it kind of helps because you can. It's easy, you know. You just watch something to the very end, and then you've, you're, you know, there you are. A yeah. true sick couch potato. Hey, by the way, I uh, yeah. talk about something. I watch Lily Hammer. I love Steve Van Zant. You know, my Emmy Steve from Bruce's band. So I mean, yeah. it's a silly thing. He plays a soprano character, uh, yeah. and he goes over and he's on the lamb in uh, Norway, and uh, Lily Hammer, and it's it's funny because he's funny, and it Dave. The last episode. Guess who? Oh, don't he... tell me. Why? Because I haven't seen it all. Oh, you? Oh, I didn't know you were watching it. No, I watched two seasons. I like. I watched quite a few of them about a year ago, and I thought it was for television. It was really great. Yeah. Funny, <laughs> it's a fun and... thing. Yeah, it's yeah, fun. It's very funny. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about. I mean, so this is the time in our broadcast that we start going on about getting support from everybody through our Amazon uh, affiliation, right? And we've had, I think we mentioned this before, people like, you don't, you're just going on and on. It's First of all, it's bad that you're actually harping about finding the Amazon portal and bookmarking it so that we can support you. But then you're, you're, you're actually complaining about, people giving you feedback that you're going on too much and you're making a thing about that. So here's what happened, okay? <laughs> Somebody out there, we have a new friend, Dave, and you don't even know him. His name is Jeremy. And Jeremy wrote to us and said, um, I tried to get one of your T-shirts, you know, because that's how I want to support you. And out of my size, out of my color... Whatever, it didn't work, and I have a solution for you. So we said, okay, let's talk. And he is going to hook us up with a manufacturer who's going to provide these T-shirts on demand so we don't have to build tremendous inventories, Dave, and we're going to be able to give like a lot of different great design T-shirts uh, make it available to anybody, and they can support us that way. It's it's almost like an affiliate. We actually just get a piece of the of the whatever comes in for the shirt because we don't handle anything. It's a fantastic thing. I mean, are you ready? We we will be able to talk about something other than Amazon. Yeah, as long as someone doesn't write to us and say you're just consumerist puppets. You We've, know, they've already done that though. They've done that. Yeah, and we don't believe we are actually. I mean, usually we admit to our incredible, uh, what can I say, erring ways. But with this, I think this keeps this thing going, and it's no harm done. Well, that's it. We're not going to say another thing, everybody. Really? Okay. We're not going to talk about Amazon at all now? No. And usually, and I'm not even prepared, because usually we say, oh, here's here's a few different things that, uh, yeah. that you can... Uh, 
go and buy on Amazon that you'd love. There's tons of stuff there that you'd love. And then we get a little piece, and that's the way to support MindPod Network. All right, everybody. We have some, uh, here's some fun stuff. We have some fun stuff, and we have some weighty stuff, right, today? And uh, so I was looking at this article, uh, and it's uh, memories can be passed down to later generations through genetic switches that allow offspring to inherit the experience of their ancestors, according to new, new research that may explain how phobias can develop. So I mentioned this to Dave, and he went, yeah, well, what's the big news there? I mean, you know, DNA, it's all coming through. What's the, so. Yeah, but I was wrong because I was, were? I actually was, yeah, because I was thinking, oh, it, 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 you inherit traits, you know. I mean, I often feel like my old dad these days, you know, that I, I react to something and I can feel his, his persona, you know. But what these guys are saying is it's not traits, it's experiences, which is different. In other words, the fact that my great, 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 great grandfather in Russia was beaten by a Cossack uh, or chased by a Cossack or something. That's an experience. And these scientists are saying that that is it's actually provable. Uh, they did it with mice, of course. Poor mice. The poor mice, these sentient beings who were treated like non-sentient beings, you know, and they made them sort of, when they were breeding, they made them smell cherry blossom. Mm. And then two or three generations down, you know, of a little mouse, great, 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 great granddaughter, they, you know, push some cherry blossom incense or something on the mouse and wouldn't breed. So it sort of proved that the experience had created the phobia rather than just DNA traceable uh, character traits. So I was wrong. Well, <laughs> then I'm glad I brought that up. Thank you. Yeah, this... Like like a fear of spiders is, in fact, an inherited defense mechanism laid down in a family's genes by an ancestor's frightening encounter with an arachnid. I mean, just think of what else that gets handed down, and not a lot of it would be that good, would it? I mean, this is not this is not a great thing in its of its own. It's a small thing, but so. Uh, is there anything else in this article that you? Well, it, it's a bit freaky because it means you have very little control over that. But, you know, it's sort of like, you you know, the kind of typical Buddhist thing to say would be, you know, you inherit or your, your next bodily incarnation is a product of the learning process of the previous 12 million or whatever. But it doesn't say. It says that's based upon karma. In other words, on, you know, your actions and thoughts and all of that. But this is saying, oh, wait a minute. You know, if you're uh, one of your antecedents way back, you know, was defending himself against a saber-toothed tiger, um, that you're always going to be frightened of, you know, little cats in people's houses. <laughs> Can I tell my story? Yeah, please, please. I used to, you know, I still do. I hang out with a lot of rastas, you know. And for some reason, and they used to come over to my apartment for various reasons. And uh, in New York, there's a, a fairly large rasta community. And, I had two large cats at that time. I mean, they were rather abnormally large. Felix. Yeah, and Mookie, and they were big. And every single time these dudes came over, you know, I'd open the door, and they were very welcoming cats. And immediately, be, no, my name Tiger, my tear came in the back room, you know. 
him by, you know, and I said, what's the matter with you? You're warriors, you're rosters. Are you, are you? No, man, him don't like that, you know. Take him in the back room. I said, no, I'm not taking him in the back room. He lives here. And there was a ridiculous conversation. Eventually, they would sit there and talk to me, but every so often their eyes would flit to the, to the cats to see if they were about to be attacked. And uh, I hope people don't construe that as a racial put-down because it's not. Only you would think of something like that. All right, well, here, so these, uh, we're going to go a little further in, into these, these phobias, and, and we have, I found some phobias. If these were handed down, we're all in deep, deep shit. That's all I got to say, okay? Uh, this is the fun part of the podcast, folks. Um, you know that uh, turophobia, turophobia, Dave, Fear of cheese. <laughs> I loved. I I wish I had turophobia because I can't eat cheese and I love cheese. Do you think they would have built that into the DNA to help me out? Um, how about how do you spell that, Roger? How do you spell it? That is T U R O P H O B I A. Turophobia. Uh-huh. So for those of you out there, if you're afraid of cheese, you now know you have a name for yourself. Uh, what about people who are f- uh, fear falling asleep? Uh-huh. That's very common, right? Uh, you fear falling asleep. Maybe yeah. fear fear loss of control and the unknown, fear of the unknown. It's like fear of dying almost, right? Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to go into this kind of... Uh, dream state. You're going to have all these dreams be like the Bardo. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What's the name for that again? Oh, the name for that is somnophobia. Somnophobia, which makes sense, right? Oh. And how about a uh, fear of clowns? <laughs> I yes, have that. You we do. all have that. We all have that. I know a lot of people who have that. I'm like, what? Fear of clowns? That's called uh, coolrophobia. C-O-U-L-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Strange. Wow. How about fear of trees? Okay. This is handed down from the DNA of your ancestors. Fear of trees. What was wrong with them? <laughs> what is that called? That's called hylophobia. Well, some of these are really counterintuitive. What language does that come from? It's an irrational fear of wood, forest, or trees. It's often caused by exposure to films and fairy tales, which involve scary woods in childhood. That makes sense, but that's not DNA. Many sufferers don't grow out of the phobia, and any walk in a scenic setting can trigger anxieties. Oh, Oh, God. Oh, geez. This is... uh, uh, How about nomophobia? What's nomophobia? Nomophobia. Nomophobia. Fear of gnomes. <laughs> Fear of being without mobile phone coverage. Oh. Okay. No, people go crazy. And yeah. it was coined five years ago after researchers discovered the phenomenon. According to recent suffer, uh, uh, surveys, more than half of the people in the UK suffer from it. Half in Britain. The f- it's people like you who this yeah. happens to. The yeah, phobia is, is brought on by fear of losing signal, running out of battery, or even losing sight of your mobile phone. Oh, this is bad. <laughs> this is the end of the world phobia. 
Okay. Uh, well, maybe this is worse. I don't know. Fear of rain. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. I love rain. It is. I mean, you could sort of see that being, you know, sort of, what's the word, atavistic. Because, I mean, in other words, you know, 22,000 years ago, you lived in sort of a leafy house somewhere, a lean-to, and every time there was a monsoon or uh, attacking dogs, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the rain would fall on you and you'd get really wet and you'd catch a disease and die. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a people, you know why? Because people, uh, your mother says, get out of the rain, what's the matter with you? Uh, yeah. It'll make you sick. Yeah. And, and also, so anyhow, terrible. Wow. This is great. I yeah. love this. Yeah. Any more? Okay. Papaphobia. Fear of nipples. No, Papa. What? Oh, Papa. No, Papa. Okay. Um, excuse me. <laughs> Just lost a large part of our <laughs> All women say. No, no, this is... Pathophobia. Well, um, fear of, 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 of um, paths. Pap. P-A-P-A. Papa. Oh, Papa. Papa. Fear of people from New Guinea. I don't know. Oh, gee, fear of the Pope. There's people <laughs> who have fear of the Pope. Okay? It's, con it's, it's uncommon. Okay. There's not a lot of people who are fearing the Pope. It's, it's, it's closely related to hierophobia, fear of holy individuals or sacred things. Now that you can see. I've seen yeah. people in India around holy people who just become like closeted inside themselves and they can't move they like deer in the headlights i've seen that so it's related uh with a uh, irrational fear of dis uh, irrational fear or dislike of saints and holy things and the fear is often triggered by a trauma associated with the pope so there you go it's, wow is there one for fear of dogs because we know someone who has tremendous fear of dogs and runs away when she sees a dog can't stand the sight of them even, you know, and it's so weird. It's it's like dogs are the most, you know, loving of all beings, and and it seems rather strange that someone would be really scared of them. But she is. She can't. She can't yeah. be around them. Well, that's a real that's thing. A, I like. I like fear. Fear of holes. Holes. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, I get that. Like if you see a sinkhole, which I've seen maybe one in my whole life, uh, somewhere, it's scary. A big drop in the ground, you know, you lose ground and it, there it is and you could fall into it. Tripophobia, fear yeah. of objects with small holes. And, what? Uh, yeah. So, what is that? What kind of, what, what, what is that? What would be an object with a small hole, for instance? Um, honeycomb? How about a honeycomb? Sponges. Any kind uh, of plant uh, with small uh, holes in it. Scary. Very scary. Woo. And um, I, I guess uh, th there's a couple more. Fear of beards. Okay, this is pogonophobia. Strong fear of beards. And they have Let a me guy. Just, you know, I, I have a fear of really long beards. Um, Jesus, you've got half these phobias, for God's sake. Well, I, you know, I'm, pretty weird no i'm just thinking about phobia you know when people talk for instance about homophobia uh you know it it, it isn't translated these days as meaning fear of of a, a sector of the society but a, a, a sort of a, a hatred of them I and mean, it's kind of changed 
In other words, you would never, someone who's really does not like gay people for some, you know, strange reason, um, is not frightened of them as much as that person hates them or thinks they're immoral or something. So phobia doesn't actually mean hatred. It means you just recoil. You're scared of them. Mm. So maybe that is really what homophobia is about. You know, that they just, people just are scared of something that they don't know. Yeah, ignorance again. Ignorance is yep. called. Right? Ignorance is called. All right, well, let's move on from our um, phobias here, which I uh, find it interesting that uh, I wonder if it's real or it's not. Uh, okay, here we are. Dave? Yeah. This is. McMindfulness is the article, and I unfortunately, did you, you have it printed out, so can you tell, uh, this is an article that appeared in... It was in the New York Times, um, in a thing called Truth Out, I think, op-ed, or, or was it? Um, oh, God, we're so... Um, it wouldn't not. surprise me if it were in the New York Times, but you can you can Google it. It's called the Mac Mindfulness Craze, the Shadow Side of the Mindfulness Revolution. And it's by Jeffrey B. Rubin, R-U-B-I-N, Truth Out. And I don't know whether it's from the New York Times. I saw no, I don't think so. I, no, but truthout.com. Yeah, um, yeah, go there. Yeah. So I, uh, something here really struck me right at the get-go uh, when uh, they talk about um, how people look— Okay. Uh, Apparently, this person who wrote this uh, is also uh, a psycho. Uh, has uh, he is a psychoanalyst, yes, and a longtime student, and now a teacher of meditation. Not only that, Raghu. Sorry to interrupt. But it says in in the bio that he is the creator of meditative psychotherapy, a practice he developed hmm. through insights gained from decades of study, teaching, and helping hundreds of people flourish. So he's not just some guy. He really made this happen. Perhaps he can come on and give us an online podcast session. Boy, that we should do great. that. Yeah, because this is a great article, as, as you said. Yeah, uh, what I wanted to say, though, was I, I can really relate. And in, in this article, uh, Jack Cornfield, our friend, uh, talks about... Uh, meditation and therapy because many 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 people in in the quote-unquote spiritual scene many of us put down therapy and now uh, in, in relation to my uh, relationship with uh, Ramdas who as everybody knows we do a lot of work with he has tremendous experience in that er area and I think Right now, he'd probably, if I'm not, I, th I think I'm correct that he would say now about people on the spiritual path and doing you know, regular practice, meditation practice and other practice, uh, many people say, you know, there's no need for uh, uh, psychotherapy. Psychotherapy just would enhance you back into the tangle of mind stuff and so on, whatever, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think he would say it depends on the therapist. It depends on the therapist that the therapist isn't caught in their uh, role, ego, blah, blah. So mm. then there's a chance. 
So that's probably what he would say. And 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 here Jack says, uh, he's he he was uh, interview he interviewed nearly a hundred Buddhist teachers from a variety of uh, of uh, traditions, and he discovered that a significant number used psychotherapy to deal with psychological issues that meditation could not resolve. Even the best meditators, Jack says, have old wounds to heal. And he wrote that in his book, Bringing the Dharma Home, Awakening Right Where You Are. Tremendous book, by the way. Go out and get that book. Uh, what he noticed was that in over 40 years of teaching and practice was that meditation practice doesn't do it all. While wonderful, um, wait, um, sorry, while wonderful, it often left untouched childhood wounds, unconscious fears, loneliness, poor self-care, troubles at work, and difficulties handling feelings and intimate relationships. So meditation certainly can transform our lives in, in powerful ways. But I totally agree with this. And just looking at myself over all these years and uh, ourselves, shall we say, uh, and just absolutely seeing that the habits, the neurosis, all of that stuff that makes up, you know, our conditioning from this lifetime, that meditation in and of itself isn't going to eradicate that. And at one time, I actually, I got lucky. Did I ever tell you this? This is uh, when I lived in Los Angeles. So it's got to be over 20 years ago, about 20 years ago. Um, I went to a therapist. I don't remember how... I even got to him. I think it was somebody saying, this will really help you. It's not like, you know, you need to go because you have any specific thing, just that you want to get um, free of some of the stuff uh, from, you know, it was Jungian. So, you know, using that whole uh, path, getting at it through dreams and uh, archetypal stuff and all of it. So I wanted to attack. So I got with this guy. And he was tremendous. He, I could, t I talked to him about, I was, t I went to India and I uh, have a guru and I, and he was not into this stuff. He was certainly a spiritual guy, but he wasn't into, um, gurus and, you know, all of that Eastern stuff. But I was able to talk to him and, and at some point, he would say, in, in the uh, session, he would say, hey, why don't we just talk to Maharaji now? <laughs> mm -hmm. Really? Let's just sit. Let's just sit with him. Let's see what he has to say about whatever it was we were talking about, meaning what kind of vibration, you know, what thoughts would come up, what ideas, would, what creativity would come up through sitting in silence with that uh, entity. So he just brought the two things together in a wonderful way. And I just got to say, boy, people out there, it certainly does help. If, but only if you can find somebody that's not stuck in, in therapeutic, uh, psychotherapist role, in um, attachment to one um, school or another, Freudian, Jungian, whatever it is. 
and uh, and and really has uh, is working on themselves at the same time. I would say that. Yeah, I would too. And that's what this article by um, Jeffrey Rubin is about. I mean, he's not putting down mindfulness, obviously. Uh, he's saying that, uh, you know, let's not get um, <clears throat> simplistic about it. it. It has a tremendous value in our lives. But if there are things that keep recurring and then people get very, 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 and understandably so get very anxious, that I meditate, I'm meditating, I'm meditating, I'm not attached, I'm not attached, I'm not attached. And then, you know, five minutes later, they're just completely freaked out by some little thing and, and, and it, it, they think, well, it doesn't work. And what I think Ruben and, of course, Jack are saying is, is what you just said. You know, that um, even though it seems like meditation would be all-encompassing, you know, that it would just simply eat up everything, they're saying, no, that's not right, because we have very modern neuroses to begin with. That, and he says later in the article, you know, that when the Buddha left the mm. compound of the yeah. king, you know, he saw illness and old age and mortality, which he'd never seen before, and became anxious and had to meditate in order to get to a point where he saw that that was the way of, of impermanence. But there, was, there were certain things that existed then that don't exist now, and there are certain things now that didn't exist then. So that in all the sutras, maybe, there's no mention of, of what could come from, oh, single parenthood, uh, alcoholism, uh, you know, environmental disasters, and so on. Um, and and I think it's very courageous of these kind of, of people who are very involved in mindfulness to come forward and say, mindfulness works, but it works in concert with very specialized ways of getting rid of, of wounds, wounds. And that if you don't sort of kind of buy into that, you may find yourself... Um, with a very dissatisfied perspective on the nature of meditation and thinking, well, this just doesn't work, you know. And that's what, you know, these great teachers are, are helping us with. I was struck by um, a couple of things. Um, and this goes through a lot of people that we've talked to, Raghu. Um, first of all, when uh, Danny Goleman, a friend, uh, wrote, uh, talked to His Holiness about self-directed contempt. Yeah. The, the Dalai Lama said that that just did not exist in Tibetan culture, that there were other problems, poverty, uh, you know, oppression, uh, neediness of, 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 of feeding our children and so forth. But it was not about, oh, I'm just a horrible American, Britain, New Zealander, Canadian. and I, I, I'm full of lust and I'm, I, I hate myself because I'm just not yeah. pure. That doesn't exist. And then he says, well, you know, in the 5th century BC, uh, it was a different situation. i kind of not sure that that's totally true in the, in the sense that I feel like maybe I'm just, you know, making something out of nothing. But I think that the Buddha and, the, and Padmasambhava and all the great teachers, thousands and thousands of these amazing tulkus and lamas, I think they knew uh, about the potential of neurosis and that uh, they may be defined in a different way, but I think, I think they knew. And I, I don't think it was sort of like a, a gap. Mm. You know, I would disagree with him on that. At my risk. But, but he does he... say, but he does say, Dave, yeah. that anthropologists and cross-cultural psychologists say that there are fundamental differences as well as similarities in individuals and cultures. And what you just pointed out, His Holiness was shocked to hear that 
you know, we have this self-directed contempt thing. And he's shocked because that particular thing, so there is difference. It doesn't exist in his culture as he knows it. Okay, so yep. that so there is a difference. So there can be... Uh, so he, I, this and being in support of the fact that you need more than, not that you need, that's not the right word, but enhancing meditation. Meditation at least cannot be the be-all, end-all when you're talking about uh, getting beyond um, afflictive uh, emotions and thoughts and darkness and all that. Yeah, he, uh, and, and he also says, you know, that the use of the word defilement it's translated as defilement, can be problematic because he says some years later in psychoanalysis, um, realized that the whole project of purification created an unconscious judgment and aversion toward parts of himself that needed to be embraced, explored and understood, not eliminated. And if you remember, Sultram Alioni Lama, our friend, mm -hmm. uh, talked about feeding the demons and many teachers talk about you can't just meditate and say, OK, I'm meditating. That stuff is going to disappear and I'm going to make it disappear. I think the far more evolved thing, which I'm just beginning to sort of learn about, really, is, oh, OK, I've really got this prejudice and it's really there and it's deep seated. And to be able to not love it exactly, but at least accept that it's part of yourself and that you can't push it away except through practice. Here's a good example, I think, further on in this uh, article. that He, he talks about somebody uh, who was you know, really on the path and, and was working on purification of, of the defilements and so on and so forth. Uh, he created an unconscious judgment and aversion towards parts of himself that needed to be embraced, explored, and understood, not eliminated. That is a key, uh, absolutely great point and uh, very, very uh, focused uh, counterbalance to uh, engaging in mindfulness, meditation, and so on, uh, at least as an intellectual uh, leverage uh, so that mm. you understand that you, that embracing is now of course you just talk, talked about uh, Soltrum who did the chode meditation you know which is embracing your dark thoughts demons whatever you you know it's all the same and uh, this is exactly saying the same thing and uh, yeah. this is a this is probably one of the most difficult things on a day-to-day -day basis you know this is all nice philosophy but embracing exploring and understanding those places, the dark places that we shut down inside ourselves and like to ride on top of is a very day-to-day, -day, it's a very difficult thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sandra, my, my, the woman I live with, uh, you know, sometimes gets a little frustrated at my screaming at the TV. Now, just that phrase, screaming at the TV, shows a certain degree of insanity. Because, you know, that isn't exactly a dialogue. But what makes me angry? Well, certain things make me angry. You know, when I hear abject lies coming from politicians who were bought and paid for puppets, you know, I get angry. And I just go, how could this person possibly be elected? Don't people see through this transparent, 
nonsense whereby they're only saying things that will interest the people who are going to give them money to be reelected. Makes me angry, I scream at the TV. That is a part of me that I've begun to learn is right, it's there. It's not a game, it's not a play, it's not something, a role that I take. Yes, it is. That's the point. It is a role. But to deny it and say, well, I'm really not, you know, I'm really not that way. And then you find yourself doing it again. And then someone who you love and who would do anything not to hurt you says, you know, maybe you should, like, <laughs> you know, think about this a little bit. Not try and eliminate it, but at least be aware of the fact that it is a part of your role that you think you are. You know, that you're supposed to scream at people who are selfish or cruel or whatever. And that gets us to a whole other level of Buddhist thought which is the question of the bodhisattva progression, which is to embrace as your guru people that you despise. Yeah, and uh, that, to me, is the most interesting of all possible uh, highest corollaries to this. You know? Teaching. But uh, also, uh, here's another good example of, of somebody who's going through a divorce, um, and after the divorce, you know, one of those terrible divorces and painful and uh, using meditation sort of put the loss and sadness at bay because you can sail right over it. And he uh, recognized uh, that this unnecessarily pro prolonged the mourning process because he never grieved his loss. It took longer to get over it. Yeah. And that is another great, great example. Uh, so I really love this article. This is a great article. Yeah. This... this uh, Gentlemen, what he's developed is called emancipatory meditation, involves intimacy with oneself, is an extraordinary, vital, and active activity in which one attends to whatever one is experiencing without any preconceived conclusion. This might be choiceless awareness, right, about it, yeah. and yeah. without trying to get rid of it. Which might seem counterintuitive to someone who, I mean, at first glance, it's like, well, if you're not going to get rid of it, aren't you just going to stay that same way? Uh, no, this is subtle stuff. Because it's saying, be aware of it. Do not encourage it exactly, but don't repress it. And don't judge it and don't any of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 This is excellent. Get, get, tell us the gentleman's name. He's called and Jeffrey. You Google him up, and we should yeah. all be Jeff getting appointments with him. Yeah. Jeffrey spelled the J E F F R E way, R E Y way. Jeffrey B. Rubin, R U B I N. And he is uh, um, he's from New York, but he's given workshops at the UN uh, and, and at Esalen, the Open Center, 92nd Street Y, which are all, you know, places... Can that you, you get in to... touch with him, really? I want to do a session with him. Yeah, it is just such a great article. Could I mean, you just write to somebody in this, uh, you know, Google him up, please? Yeah, I, I will definitely do that. Cause and you it, have a lot of these phobias from, the, you know, that thing, too. So you, you, you could Well, use I don't, it. you know, actually... <laughs> My biggest phobias are, are to do with large land masses and, and, and oceans and stuff. I have a little bit, I'm a bit agoraphobic, actually, a little bit, but not like... Uh, What's agoraphobic? Outside. You know, that... just not being able to go outside. Oh. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I can go outside. That's not the problem. I mean, when I'm at your house and I look at the rolling Appalachians, it, whatever, it's quite beautiful. I have none of that. But sometimes uh, I've had phobias about large expanses of land. And obviously, it's not going to attack you. So it's a phobia. Yes. Uh, Can you... you know. All right. Definitely. But I like spiders, by the way. And as you know, I have a pet spider, so... Okay. So you're okay about that. Uh, the yeah. holes and stuff like that, we don't know about. But uh, yeah. would you just call Mr. Rubin, please? I'll really try, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, you have something else in mind here. I want to 
switch gears uh, a little bit. Well, it's it's on the same trajectory, really. I mean, you know, it's it's we've gone through it before. Um, Rago tells me, although I wasn't sure how, uh, the eight verses of thought transformation, which is a text by the uh, Kadampa Geshe Langri Tangpa, and it's about the, what he calls the Paramita Yana practice of method and wisdom. And we actually did a bunch of these, but the one that um, I don't think we did do uh, is the hardest one, which is number seven, which I wanted to bring up because it links with, the, with what uh, Dr. Rubin was talking about. It's number seven. Um, is Dr. Rubin a doctor? Yes, yes, okay. PhD. I mean, he's a PhD doctor. PhD. Do we, well, well, we'll take know. that. That's good. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, well, it isn't specifically number seven. Basically, what they're talking about is um, two things. One is, you know, seeing your ogre, your enemy as your guru, and the person or being or whatever that you detest as being a great teaching device uh, to advance if you can uh, utilize that dynamic of detestment or, or contempt and transform it via practice into a teaching for you to understand that you are still in the us and them sort of mode. Um, so that's w what it is. But then that goes into a secondary thing, which is, again, the subtlety of Buddhist thought is so mind-blowing to me all the time. I'll repeat it. One of the 46 secondary vows of a bodhisattva refers to a situation in which somebody is doing something very harmful and you have to use forceful method, methods, forceful methods, or whatever else is necessary to stop that person's actions immediately. If you don't, you have transgressed that commitment. Now, okay, let's put that on one side, that you're saying you have to take action against something that's causing harmful harm to other sentient beings. At the same time, the the the, the, uh, the the edict, as it were, is you must accept your enemy as uh, you must love your enemy and you must f find in that dynamic uh, e evolution of, of, of your consciousness. Now, how does that apply to us? I mean, I've been thinking about it in terms of this ISIS horror, uh, because there's no I don't think anyone's debating this that I know of that, you know, th what they're doing, uh, the beheadings, the terrible treatment of children and women just awful, cruel, uh, despicable stuff. I think what this is implying, I think what it is, this is a commentary by His Holiness the Dalai Lama on, on these transformative thoughts. Um, I think what he's saying is, Buddhists do not say that if something is endangering other beings that you're aware of, that you should, you know, put down your arms, smile and go, it's okay, I love everybody, and I love you. Because you're just going to get beheaded, and others are. I saw a video a couple of days ago uh, of a child being forced to behead a human being, oh, an adult. A child, an 11-year-old boy. And I was so revulsed, and I'm sure everyone that's listening to this would be equally revulsed, no matter what your politics are or whether you think American imperialism has destroyed the world, which may be true, but the idea of coming back so... The real question here that's being posed by His Holiness is, if you see that, what do you do? If you do not take action to help other people who are being brutalized, he says you're being a traitor to the commitment of the Bodhisattva. Does that mean you take up arms and fight ISIS? Does that mean that, that President Obama and Prime Minister Cameron should immediately send 
thousands of troops to Syria and Yemen and Somalia and eradicate these people as we eradicated the Nazi hierarchy in World War II? Um, it's, I'm asking a question. I, I have no dogmatic answer. It's a real problematic question. Well, the, the Tibetans, of course, did fight the Chinese when that oppression happened over many years at many different points until, of course, there was no way they could uh, stand up to the military force of the Chinese. And uh, you're going, you want to go all the way back to the uh, Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita and Krishna telling Arjun, who says, I can't do this. And he said, it's your dharma to do this. You have to do it without attachment and so on and so forth. The basic tenet of the Gita. But uh, I think this is particularly a far more complex situation, which, uh, and of course, this is something that has been going on for, what, many, many centuries, right? over a thousand years probably. And um, to, to follow what you're saying, that His Holiness is saying, that is your duty to, to react to this kind of uh, activity, I think it's too broad. I mean, can you imagine that, are you saying people should go join the armed forces and, uh, or, you know, what are we talking about? Well, they, they, met, you're not no, talking about that, obviously. Not specifically, no. But I, I am saying that I've met many, particularly when I was living in England, growing up in England, I met many men, and they usually were men, men who were like your father, uh, a, a bomber pilot or a bombardier on a on a Shackleton airplane bombing Dresden or the, the dam yeah. busters and all those things. And they had no, absolutely no problem with that. And they were gentle, wonderful men, many of them. And uh, it was clear to them that if they did not combat the Nazi uh, plague, that it would, in fact, take over the whole world. It had the ability to do that and would. And as Hitler said one time, in a thousand years, no one will remember this. We'll just be the supreme thousand-year Reich, just as we do not remember, most of us, anything that happened a thousand years ago. So... You know, it had to be combated, at least on the human level and uh, of life experience, you know. And men and women who fought in World War II, very few of them thought, you know, we can't do this. So we're conscientious objectors who so were lovely people and we know that. But um, it is a question, you know, I mean, just in terms of political thought, um, we all got very annoyed when uh, Cheney and Halliburton, his company, decided to invade Iraq about a lie. There were no, me there were no weapons of mass destruction. We all know, even the, even the people who supported it then agreed to that. And what that did was it made it impossible to fight real foes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just a side thought, but we can no longer do that. We can't send troops to the country. And so we're seeing that the Islamic State, IS, is growing, that they have millions of dollars at their disposal, they are a, a real force. I know we're bred to be fearful by, you know, the news industry. And, you know, I decry that. But I don't think there's any doubt that these, um, this group is, is maniacally fanatical and cruel. And should we, should we take them on? 
And are we taking them on? Or are we just going to let them run riot all over the, uh, you know, the Middle East and, uh, you know, many other places? Well, that's all the external stuff, though. I'd like to also include, because that's all true, what's going to happen? Obviously, it's the people in power in these governments that make decisions and, and in fact, put many people at risk uh, and have done so for many years in the Middle East to no effect whatsoever. Uh, the gross inability of any economy to support any work or anything like that or any quality of life uh, that's an awful ongoing problem. That's a big part of this. But I have also in another, uh, something else that I was reading, something that we actually talked about uh, and brought up uh, oh, probably a couple of months ago, and it was uh, an, an article around uh, breaking the habit of selfish, selfishness. And in this one part, this addresses, I believe, what you're, uh, where you're coming from uh, and what His Holiness uh, on one le there's on more than one level, and this is on another level. So, when you uh, in circumstances where you, there's substantial loss that's harmful to you as well as others, um, a forceful uh, response must be initiated. Right, that's what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. But only while remembering that your attacker, like you wants happiness and does not want suffering. Now, I know that's hard. Uh, so that's one, one thing. We'll talk about that. Still, it can be unbearably difficult not to become brutal in both thought and deed with repressed rage, suddenly controlling speech and then body, revealing that the attempt to take all loss and offer the victory to them was self-delusion, a mere saccharine display of uh, mannequin compassion. So what they're talking about here, this, this, this particular thing was about uh, kind of what you said, uh, the, the worst, you know, we said before about the, the worst thing in your life, the worst person is your guru. Uh, and this is about... Um, uh, it, it addresses it in two ways. Obviously, if, and we've talked about this before, if we are reacting, we don't, you know, we don't have the ability, we're, we're not, just you and I sitting right here, we're talking about this stuff, and uh, what's the only thing we can do? We can, we can, in social action, we can lend our voice to what we feel is a, is a proper response that hopefully is not end up being uh, as just brutalizing from our side to to their side and if we can have some kind find that equanimity within ourselves that we can deal with that part of us that's them right that's completely utterly off the rails into darkness we all have, you know, this is all Jungian. We all have that darkness. If we can find the place where we can clean that up, I think then we have a chance either if, if you're a young man joining the forces and believe this is something that needs to be done to support just this kind of, uh, 
of a process that His Holiness has talked about, and certainly those people that became soldiers in Tibet to fight the Chinese, absolutely, 100%, were in you know feeling that uh, were in that place, and and if they were Buddhists, they were also in this other place of we have to clean up our own darkness inside if we're going to do this in a way that's going to be effective, not just killing people. So, and it, what's the best thing about this? Is The best uh, uh, holy book on this subject, in my mind, is the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna talks to Arjuna about exactly this. How do you do your dharma, in this case, take up arms, and in this case, against his own family? How do you do this without attachment? So how do you even think of, of this without attachment? Because you, you talk about this kid that was forced to do this thing, and you know people, I'm like, oh my God, you want to die. It's so horrible. Mm. And, and you just want to lash out, but you can't do that. And that, that's the thing that's the most difficult for us to um, well, absorb. I mean, you want to lash out, but you know, my experience with many uh, servicemen and women uh, you know, army, navy, whatever, is that almost invariably when they're out of the service, they have a certain overview which is not full of rage. Um, you know, I, I had occasion to make a film in Israel and in, in the West Bank some years ago and had to interview a lot of, of um, IDF people, Israeli Defense Forces people, and uh, also people on the other side, Palestinians. And what we were most amazed by was the fact that very few of them displayed any anger. Uh, it's usually people who don't have to fight that can get real horrendous. But people who do the fighting, who actually have to go in there and defend something or whatever, uh, they're, they're not all psychopaths. And even though war is legalized murder, um, you know, it is. Uh, you're killing someone. Um, many people who've had to do that have the ability not to hate because they were in the thick of it and they saw how terrible it is. And, you know, many uh, people who fought in World War II, the worst war in our experience at any rate, um, were not, you know, they weren't kind of running into Nazis and going, ah, oh, you filthy bastard Hun, you know. It really wasn't like that. There, there was a job to be done to defend the country, as it were. Um, it's people who were not involved in the in the war for more of it who frequently display that antagonism and that rage and the guys that have to do it uh have learned a lot in the process of war and of of, of violence and come out of it in a very peaceful and gentle way uh, and that's not to de deny the diseases that have emerged out of iraq and afghanistan um you know we know about that that almost every soldier comes out with a, a real problem ptsd um but rarely with that horrible anger, um, you know. So that's not an answer. There's very no answer. complex, yes. It's it all very, very complex beyond our little purview. But we are reacting when we read this stuff or see it on television or on the Internet, just like everybody else. And that's real. I mean, we see it. We are, yes, the media, of course, is a whole entertainment ship of its own and uh, has its own self-interest and purposes that uh, make this even more difficult. I mean, yeah, like and CNN newscasters are always saying, 
French people are in great fear. There is a deadly fear across the France. That's not true. Yes, people were very upset about the murder of those 12 journalists. But I very much doubt that tens of millions of people are just trembling. That's a media-created thing yeah. which is really quite awful. Because it, 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 for people who are vulnerable, it makes them frightened. And, you know, so we have some problems in our, in our complex modern society that are brought about by exaggerational, you know, sort of hyperbolic, dramatic, melodramatic responses to everything. Yes, ISIS is awful, but what you just said, you know, relates to this perfectly, that um, if you're just full of rage and you want to kill, you know, these terrorists, uh, eventually it'll, it'll be bad. It, it never... Somebody said recently that no revolution seems, no violent revolution seems to end up in peace. Well, we are getting very, this is the most serious, heavy <laughs> conversation we've had on Mind Rolling since its inception. And yeah. uh, so uh, I, I would... Uh, these are tough times, and that's why a lot of the different people that we bring on mind rolling, teachers or people in social action, and uh, you know, it's all about what can we all share together that can give us some leg up on getting, you know, before we get lost in in any of this stuff. Uh, we are here, and we are involved. Uh, as much as anybody in any part of the world and uh, this this suffering that's going on is at times quite overwhelming so uh, Dave I just hope that we sincerely can uh, continue to to uh, share some of the um, positive and creative ways in which we can um, deal with all this stuff inside ourselves and then be able to help uh, whoever it is uh, next door to us or at a distance from us. And so uh, it, it's a bit of tough times, bit of tough times. But we are going to go on. And uh, again, everybody, the, uh, this article by Dr. Rubin, uh, that in terms of emancipating us uh, as individuals, uh, which is the only thing, first thing, not the only thing, the first thing we need to do, uh, I highly recommend that, and I think so does Dave. Yes. And uh, we're going to have that up on our site, uh, MindPod Network. Go to MindPod Network, and you'll find Mind Rolling. You'll find Ramdas here and now. You'll find Jack Kornfield. You'll find Krishnadas and Sharon Salzberg, and soon to come. A couple of other of our low-hanging fruit group friends, as they call them, uh, that are going to offer up uh, more. So there's a lot of content that really can help uh, on, on these particular uh, subjects that we've been talking about, from phobias to uh, ISIS. So uh, take a look. Go up there. And, of course, uh, we thank you for your support. And we, we love the fact that uh, we're starting to hear from more people and there's a at the website last weekend, David Silver, ten thousand people showed up to hang out. Okay, that's a wow. lot of people for yeah, a weekend. So uh, appreciate that, and let's uh, keep the uh, support going because we uh, we love it and we need it. So onward and forward, David. Next week. 
uh, you'll continue to get better, and we'll continue, and we have some great guests coming up, everybody. So mindrollingpodcast.com. Go there or mindpodnetwork.com. And Dave, I'll see you next week. Yeah. Great. Bye, everybody. <laughs>